You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Recent clinical trials have found that high-dose statin therapy compared with conventional dose statin therapy reduces the risk of cardiovascular events in patients with acute coronary syndromes and stable coronary artery disease. What does this mean for the business of medicine? Have we established what one day of life is worth? How do you know when to pay the price? Welcome to Lipid Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today to discuss recent findings of his study is Dr. Sandeep Vijan, one of the lead authors and researchers on the incremental benefit and cost-effectiveness of high-dose statin therapy in high-risk patients with coronary artery disease. Dr. Vijan, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right, I'd like to start with the bare-bone basics. How much do the statins cost that you used in these particular trials? The high-dose statin, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we typically model as a torvastatin 80 milligrams a day, and that costs about $3.78 a day or about $1,380 a year. Simvastatin at 20 milligrams, which is the comparator drug in most of these trials, costs about $2.38 a day or about $870 a year. So there's a difference of about $500 per year. So high-dose statins is equal to about one frappuccino a day. Right. And uh, lesser dose, about a, a, a decaf skim latte. Exactly. So if we can get people to uh, convert from the, high, the frappuccinos, we'll be all set. Right. Not to mention we'll help with their diabetes and their metabolic syndrome. That's right. Dr. Vigen, uh, if you were to use a generic instead, what kind of differences do you see in price? When we focus on the difference in cost between the high and low-dose statins, that certainly affects how cost-effective these are. So, for example, in our base analysis with the high-dose atorvastatin costing about $1.40 more per day, it looks pretty cost-effective. But as that price difference increases, things look a little different. In the acute coronary syndrome patients, it almost doesn't matter how much higher the price of the statin is. So even if you go out to 3 or $4 a day higher cost, it still looks very cost-effective to treat people with the high-dose statins. But in the stable coronary disease patients, as soon as you get to about a $2 a day difference, things don't look quite so good in terms of what we usually consider cost-effective. In addition to drug costs, obviously there's the cost of being hospitalized. That has a major impact. What, What kind of money are we talking about for someone having an acute MI these days? The acute MI hospitalization costs... Typically, if you include sort of everything, ranges from about $5,000 to $8,000, and that doesn't include procedures or anything. That's just the cost of hospital care independent of that. I mean, partly that depends on how complicated things are. So certainly for complicated patients, it's more in the $8,000 range, and uncomplicated patients, it's a $5,000 range. But if you include things like revascularization, it goes up quite a bit. And since most people with acute coronary syndromes or acute MI in particular get a precutaneous intervention at some point in their hospitalization these days, that adds quite a lot. Um, for example, the typical or average price that Medicare might pay for a percutaneous coronary intervention is about $12,000 or a little bit more than that. And for a coronary artery bypass graft, it's more on the order of twenty-five dollars to $30,000. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Lipid Talk on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and today I'm talking with Dr. Sandeep Vijan of the University of Michigan. Dr. Vigen's interests lie in understanding economic factors associated with diseases and the cost-effectiveness of interventions to improve outcomes. Dr. Vigen, is it fair to say that you would change the current recommendations about revascularization, and would that affect your results? Yes, I certainly would. 
given the results of the recent COURAGE trial, I would actually suggest that revascularization is not a particularly effective therapy for most people who have stable coronary disease. So in that setting, since one of the major things that uh, high-dose statin therapy does is prevent revascularization, it definitely affects our cost-effectiveness. So the lower or the less frequently revascularizations occur, the less cost-effective statins are going to look, strangely enough. So I would actually say that it's likely that if we start to do fewer angioplasties on people with stable coronary disease, that high-dose statin therapy is going to look less cost-effective. I've interviewed a lot of cardiologists on the show about the COURAGE trial, and none of them really seem to think anything's going to change, so I don't think you have to worry about your numbers changing. Yeah, I I think that that might be the case, but unfortunately this is one of those situations where I think the evidence is not going to change practice as quickly as it should. I think that over a decade or so you might see a reduction in some of these the rates of revascularization. But yeah, I think there's a lot of other factors that are going to impact that beyond just the evidence. After you did this study, what kind of jumps out to you? What seems most important to you in terms of affecting survival? Getting the high-risk people, the people with acute coronary syndromes on, on high-dose statins is an overwhelmingly positive thing. Doing something that can gain four months of life expectancy is not very easy in most cases. So you know, when we project that patients with acute coronary syndromes get about four months of additional good health, that is actually quite a large effect. I mean, if you think about it in, in context, over each decade in the last 40 years or so, we've averaged about a gain of one year in life expectancy through everything that we've done. You can get four months of that in just patients with acute coronary syndrome with just one intervention, which is a high-dose statin. And that's really a remarkable number. You know, a lot of other things that we do, screening for breast cancer, screening for colon cancer, those things add literally days of life expectancy. To get months of life expectancy is quite an astonishing finding. So you are able to extend someone's life four months. Yep. I know you may not know the answer to this, but what are these people doing with their four months of life? Are they making it worthwhile or are they still sitting around watching TV? Not something I couldn't really answer. I'm I'm sure there's a mix of things. But you do have to remember, that's an average number. There are some patients who are probably going to get nothing, and some patients who get enormous gains, and it's just like anything else. You know, there are certain people who get huge benefits and, and many who don't. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about trying to target more effectively is figuring out which patients actually get that benefit. And, you know, that's really what my ultimate research goal is, because that really means we can make cost-effectiveness much better if we can figure out who gets benefit and who doesn't. Well, let's say we live in a world where... You have the choice. You're given four months to live, and the hospital or the physician says, listen, I have this treatment, but you have to pay for it. It's going to give you four months or random treatment or the normal treatment, which is going to give you two weeks, and you have to pay for it. I don't think it's so terrible for a patient to have to pay for that versus an insurance company. No, it's not. That's certainly something that is one of the things that people are thinking about with shifting copays and so on. But what I would say is that I think if we did this right, and we could really figure out who gets the benefit, which therapies are the most beneficial, and, you know, which ones are come at a reasonable cost, then I think that we could provide the most important things at a very reasonable cost, especially compared to what we do today. So, you know, I'll give you the example. I think that we talked about before, which is I think that asking patients to pay for an angioplasty or stent when they have stable coronary disease might be a very reasonable thing to do. But I would say that if you have a very proven and cost-effective drug like a high-dose statin in, in people with acute coronary syndromes, that if we stop doing so many angioplasties and stents, that we could probably pay for all of those drugs for everybody who needs them and probably end up saving money in the long term. 
So, you know, that's when we talk about cost effectiveness and sort of trying to drive coverage and payment policies in the right direction. That's what we really would like to do. In your other studies that you've done with other disease states or medicines, have you come across as powerful of results? In a few cases, yes, but they're almost all in cardiovascular disease. So I, I do a lot of things on both screening for diseases and also then treatment of, and, and, and prevention of cardiovascular disease. So in terms of cardiovascular disease, things like treating hypertension aggressively in patients with diabetes provides enormous gains. And that's not only effective and, and on a similar or probably, in fact, greater, more life expectancy gains than what we see here. It's cost-neutral or even cost-saving to do so, which is very unusual. We don't see a lot of things that if you treat aggressively, it saves money. But that's one example. If you contrast that to most of the other things we do, this is far more beneficial than most things that we do. Well, tell me something that we do routinely that we think we're doing the right thing and you have learned through your studies that it's meaningless and worthless. I don't know that meaningless and worthless is the right thing because I tend to focus on areas where there's good data showing that there is some efficacy and then trying to understand whether that actually means anything tangible in terms of long-term life expectancy. Consider, for example, treating blood glucose intensively in a diabetes patient. There's an underlying assumption that that's a cost-effective thing to do. Well, it turns out that it's not usually a cost-effective thing to do, especially in comparison to treating cardiovascular risk factors more aggressively like hypertension and hyperlipidemia. So one of the things that happens is we have to realize that different people get different benefits from these things. And most people with diabetes tend to develop it later in their life. And the complications of diabetes typically might take 10, 15, or even 20 years to develop. So if you start treating most of people with diabetes intensively in terms of their blood glucose, it turns out that they don't live long enough to gain the benefits of the therapy. And that's a strange way to think about things, but that's the reality. So you could be putting a lot of people on insulin who have reasonable glucose control but not perfect glucose control. And, you know, if they're 65, 75 years old, you basically have to live to 90 or 100 to get the benefits of treatment. And so when we talk about sort of focusing and understanding who really gets benefit, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, some interventions take a long time to pay back. Some pay back in short term. Statin therapy, treatment of blood pressure, those accumulate benefits in three to five years that are easily detectable. Every trial of statin therapy has shown differences in cardiovascular event rates or mortality or some combination thereof within three to five years. Same is true for treating blood pressure. For blood glucose, you have to stretch it out to 10 years, maybe even 20, before you really start to see those benefits. So it's not to say that blood glucose control is not valuable in all patients, but there is a decent portion of patients where it's really not cost-effective because it's not that effective. I'd like you to destroy another myth for me because I actually am a huge skeptic and cynic, and I love hearing this stuff because I don't believe most of the things I'm taught. So give me another example where conventional wisdom is wrong. Okay, how about how often we need to do certain screening tests? I'll bring it back to diabetes because this is one of my major research areas, obviously. So, you know, there's a common wisdom that we should be screening people for diabetic eye disease every year because it seems like a reasonable thing to do because diabetes people get eye problems. You know, they develop retinopathy and macular edema and they lose vision. Diabetes is certainly one of the most common, if not the most common cause of visual loss in adults in this country. And yet, where did this recommendation for annual eye screening come from? I'm going to guess a group of lobbyists for the ophthalmologists. Basically, what happened was people did cost-effectiveness analyses, and they didn't compare it to anything except doing nothing. 
So, you know, you could say, well, we can screen or we can, do, we can screen every year or we can do nothing at all. And that doesn't really seem like a fair comparison, does it? It's kind of like when you say, well, you either do high-dose statin therapy or you do nothing at all. That's not really a fair comparison either because we can do some intermediate of the two. And we really need to know when we get more aggressive about things that that's really worthwhile. And that was sort of the goal of this statin analysis. Well, we've done the same kind of analyses in screening for diabetes eye disease, and it turns out that for almost the majority of people, you could probably get away with screening every two, three, maybe even every five years, believe it or not, and lose almost no quality of life. You don't gain life expectancy by screening for eye disease, but you certainly gain quality of life. I think that that's probably the case in many of the things that we do. You can reasonably identify a lower risk group of people who don't necessarily need as intensive interventions. And sort of our attempt at looking at the stable coronary disease population versus the acute coronary syndrome population is one example of that. But I think we can do better. And I think that's an excellent place to end. I'd like to thank our guest very much, Dr. Sandeep Vijan. I'm Dr. Larry Casco, and you've been listening to Lipid Talk on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails or comments to xm at reachmd.com. And thanks for listening.